Hi, this is Arnie Arneson. Welcome to Race Class with Boston University Law Professor Jonathan Feingold, our year-long look at critical race theory. Normally, once a month, we teach a class with Professor Jonathan Feingold of Boston University called Race Class. My answer to the attacks on critical race theory was, don't get mad, get even, teach it. But this summer, rather than going once a month, we are taking two bites at the apple every single month during the summer, in part focusing on what we call our summer series on affirmative action. In a lot of ways, I was getting ready for this uh, class from Jonathan Feingold, and I went to the Crimson.com, which is uh, the newspaper for, uh, for Harvard, because in a lot of ways it started this, and it was entitled A Harvard Without Affirmative Action. So in a lot of ways, we are going to be focusing on, this is class three on affirmative action, the title of this section is Race Matters During Admissions, Inherited Race, Class Advantage. Jonathan, I want to welcome you back to this incredibly educational opportunity that you have given us. And as I always tell people, that this is a class where we approach race and racism from a place of curiosity and history rather than anxiety. And I'm going to tell you right now that anxiety, whenever you talk race, everyone suddenly goes like this. And I don't want them to go like this. I want them to be open to learning, open to questions, and open to new information. And what I am so grateful for, Jonathan, is that every time I talk to you, I walk away going, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. And then it explains so much. So let me welcome you back to the program. Thanks, Arnie. Uh, Really good to be here. For anyone who has found any value in this program or just has a lot more questions about what critical race theory is or how to think about race and you know, productive, helpful ways, I have to put a plug in for CRT Summer School, which is happening virtually all next week, hosted by the African American Policy Forum, which is Kim Crenshaw's shop that she co-founded along with one of my former mentors, Vassar College Professor Luke Harris. I'll be leading a couple small panels there, but it's a week of really like the highest quality content all happening virtually. And I strongly recommend uh, that folks check it out. Okay, so what I'm going to ask you to do is I'm going to ask you to send me contact information. I'll put it up on my personal Facebook page, on the Attitudes Facebook page. I'll tweet the sucker out. Again, don't run away from something. Be curious. Be curious. That's the greatest strength. And if we're going to save a democracy, it's because we develop that curiosity muscle. That will save democracy in the end. So this is where we're at part three of this summer series on affirmative action. Can you just really quickly remind everyone what we did in part one, what we did in part two, and why we are at a different sort of section of affirmative action because we sort of divided into sort of three major areas. Yeah. And so, so all great question. Let me situate everyone. So we are having this six part mini series on affirmative action where we're asking how race operates when admissions processes are quote unquote colorblind. So that's to say how race operates when there's no affirmative action. And the reason why we're doing that is because you really can't understand how affirmative action functions unless you know, understand the baseline against which it intervenes or against which it enters. And so in our prior two episodes, we talked about how race matters 
after admission. So on a college campus, what it means when you have a college campus that's racially diverse or one that isn't racially diverse. In this two-part sort of mini subset of the mini series, we're talking about how race matters during admissions when admissions are quote unquote colorblind. And so imagine a scenario, which is very likely to be the case a year from now, when the Supreme Court strikes down affirmative action at Harvard and across the country. And by affirmative action, I wanna be really precise here. The Supreme Court is very likely going to prohibit both public and private universities from formally accounting for an applicant's race. One reason why that is so problematic is because at least if you read the brief that was recently filed by the party suing Harvard, what they're saying is that it's inconsistent with Brown v. Board of Education to employ an affirmative action policy, which is in every sort of way revisionist history um, that is not rooted you know, in fact. But I just want to make really clear what that will mean. When the Supreme Court prohibits universities like Harvard or UNC or anyone else from considering applicant race, they're going to say that the 14th Amendment Brown v. Board of Education prohibits universities, historically white-serving universities, from engaging in race-conscious efforts to desegregate their campuses by countering all sorts of racial advantages and often class advantages that flow to white students. But isn't Brown about desegregating? So it was literally intentionally race of race aware. It saw all white schools and all black schools and it said that is not America. And they actually looked at race. Race was the trigger here. They couldn't be race blind. They had to be race observant in order to do Brown. And beyond that, many of the court order remedies that followed Brown were race conscious. And so it really is an inversion of constitutional law and history to suggest that Brown prohibits affirmative action. And so that's sort of the backdrop against which we're entering this conversation. And so what I really want to talk about today in the limited time we have is how does race operate within Harvard's admissions policy, not taking account of affirmative action. So obviously affirmative action is one site in which the university is consciously thinking about race. But imagine affirmative action is gone. And, and so Arnie, I'm just going to start by asking you some, just a series of very sort of straightforward guiding questions. I only want yes or no. Okay. Uh, like you're, this is, you know, your deposition, your attorney is saying, don't say anything more, just yes or no. And so just the first, these are basic race class questions. Does race matter? Yes or no? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Even when we don't consciously do something because of race or expressly consider a person's race, does race still matter? Oh, God, yes. Yeah. And so when the Supreme Court says that Harvard may not consider an applicant's race, does that mean that Harvard's admission system has somehow gone race neutral? No. No. In other words, just because we go, quote unquote, colorblind, does that mean race no longer matters? No. Does it mean that an institutional's admissions process is free of quote-unquote racial preference? No. So that's the setup. This is race class. We have to actually dig a little bit deeper um, and get more precise. So the basic sort of the insight or the intuition is race still matters even if affirmative action is gone and there's some sort of racial preference that's operating. Now Harvard sort of fortunately for us produced this nice graphic that breaks down 
the various considerations that it takes into account during its admissions process. You can look at it uh, on Harvard's website. I'll just describe it for, for listeners. It's this nice little graphic that has, I think, 10 little circles connected. Um, and each circle is a different consideration that Harvard takes into account. Teacher counselor recommendations, essays, SAT, ACT. There's one little ellipsis at the end, additional considerations. We'll actually spend some time talking about that. According to this graphic, Arnie, where is race relevant within Harvard's admissions process? Or like, what's the natural reading of this? Well, there is a circle entitled race, ethnicity, background, and that's what they claim is their race box. But as I'm looking at some of these things, I'm thinking, tell me how race doesn't impact SATs. Tell me how race doesn't impact awards. Tell me how race doesn't impact life experience. Because again, when you look at privilege and you look at white history, a lot of those things are things that are, they're not race neutral, but they're clearly white and not black. Great. And so that's a really important insight and where we're going to head into far more depth in a couple of weeks when we have the good fortune of uh, law professor Jerry Kong, who is a co-founder of UCLA's Critical Race Studies program. He's going to come in and join us to help us think about how all of those other considerations, even though we might call them facially neutral or colorblind right. considerations, are laid in with you know, race in all sorts of ways. But today, I actually want to talk about that ellipsis. And so again, for listeners, you've got this graphic with a bunch of considerations in bold-ish sort of text. And then one, you know, additional considerations. Presumably, this is a footnote that doesn't actually have uh, much of an impact on Harvard admissions process. In truth, uh, it's a very different story. So the question is, well, what is in that ellipsis, like what are additional considerations? It turns out that additional considerations includes what uh, we'll refer to today as the ALDC bonus. We'll explain what that is in a minute. Uh, and we're gonna play a game of 20 questions, actually I think about eight questions, in order to expose one of the sites in which race makes a profound impact on Harvard's admissions process but even as Harvard sort of characterized it, obscures um, how race uh, is operating. I'm just gonna start with a claim. My claim, and we'll see where it goes. Harvard's admissions system, even with its existing affirmative action policy, favors wealthy white applicants. In other words, there is today race class, a race class preference within Harvard's admission system that benefits individuals who have, you know, the beneficiaries of inherited race or class privilege. And to break this down, I'm going to turn to maybe an unlikely source. I'm going to turn to the expert that has been hired and is working with the party suing Harvard, the party that is attacking affirmative action. I'm, I'm going to just use their study. I love it. So it's question one. I use this term ALDC bonus. What is an ALDC? I have the answer in front of me. A stands for athletes. L stands for legacies. D stands for dean's list. And I guess C stands for kids or children of faculty and staff. So that's what we need to know. Athletes, legacies, dean's list, kids of faculty and staff. And so within Harvard's admissions process, there is a bonus that is given to applicants who fall into these categories. And the dean's list, it's not clear what a dean's list means. Is that someone who's like really, you know, really high grades? Dean's list is generally folks who can buy a library. 
or whose parents might be able to buy a library. That's sort of, you know, the paradigmatic example of who, what gets you on a dean's list. And so question two, if you fall into one of these categories, does it affect your likelihood of admission? And I could rephrase that a little bit. So imagine you had two students who on paper, they're identical. Same, you know, everything in their profile looks the same on paper, but one of them has a parent who's a Harvard alum and the other one doesn't. Are your odds of getting in different? We can answer this in many different ways, but so broadly, the answer is yes. Broadly, the standard admissions rate for a non-ALDC applicant is 5.5% from the time period in question that the study came from. The ALDC admit rate is 30%, about wow. five times more likely wow. of getting in. And it actually turns out that athletes get the biggest bump of all of these subcategories. Wow. Now, a typical applicant that had a 1% chance of admission based on metrics and Anyone who's interested in the underlying study and the analyses and methodology should look at the study, but I'm just sort of reporting back what it says. The typical white applicant with a 1% chance of admission, same profile but recruited athlete, 98% chance of admission. <laughs> if you're the typical athlete and the typical recruited athlete gets in at an 86% clip, same profile but not an athlete, your chances of admission are down to 0.1%. So wow. you should... Um, Harvard should not be your safety school. Okay, question three, do any of these categories correspond to what we might ever consider as quote unquote academic merit? There's a lot of ways in which people critique merit. My, I myself have critiqued merit, but even if we accept there's some notion of merit that corresponds to academic talent and potential, do any of these categories correspond to that? Well, if you assume dunking a basketball is merit, then maybe you could suggest that that's why the athletes get in. But I suspect by merit, you mean academic rigor and academic excellence. And I'm looking at legacies, and I know what they have. They have a parent with the right name and a check. I know what kids of faculty have. They have their parents on the faculty. Those things don't necessarily correlate with merit. So I don't necessarily see merit as something that is an advantage for an ALDC, but they do have an advantage called ALDC. And so, and you're right, Arnie, to say that, well, we can actually think about merit in a lot of different ways. And right. often we think about merit in a far too shallow way, but almost always the attacks that target affirmative action mobilize a very shallow notion of merit that often is simply reduced to some standardized test score or that plus a GPA. And so I'm not suggesting that's how we should think about merit. But if that's how we're thinking about merit, certainly the folks in this group, whether it's someone's like fencing ability or sailing ability or good skiing ability or polo skills, that's not something that correlates to academic talent and potential, which is generally what is offered as what makes someone deserving of getting into a school like this. Okay, so question four. Does Harvard consider status in these groups as a way to account for you know, societal factors or dynamics that might be inflating or understating a student's profile. And so you could imagine, for example, that Harvard takes certain things into account, like maybe someone's socioeconomic status as a proxy for a lack of resources at certain mm -hmm. points in their career, like you, you can't buy test prep. And we're going to take that into account because what that means is that your SAT score actually understates 
your existing talent and potential. Are these bonuses doing that sort of work? Oh God, no. They're actually doing they're actually doing the opposite. They're ignoring all those things. And the advantage is, again, a, a familiar last name because it was a Harvard grad or a familiar professor's name because again, nothing to do with sort of that environment that you're describing. Yeah, no, it is um, and it's not ignoring, it's it's rewarding yeah. membership in groups that enjoy all sorts of social, economic, and political capital. So it's a double bonus or a triple bonus, because you have access to those resources, you are getting just getting this bonus from an accident of birth, and you're getting admitted when you otherwise wouldn't be notwithstanding those resources. Now, one important insight here, people, opponents of legacy will often say, this is affirmative action for whites. That's not true, because that is misdescribing affirmative action. That's suggesting that affirmative action is some sort of preference as opposed to a tool that is countering all of those forces that create advantages for white and predominantly wealthy white students. And so it's very important that we make a distinction between how legacy is operating as a double or triple bonus and how affirmative action is operating as a corrective that is just trying to bring us back to some neutral playing field. All right. So now question four. Harvard's ALDC bonus is, you know, it's colorblind. It's facially neutral. It doesn't really, quote unquote, matter what racial group you're a part of. If you're a recruited athlete, um, if you're legacy, you all at least ostensibly benefit. So does that mean that the ALDC bonus, just because it's colorblind, does that mean it's race neutral? God, no. No. But, it, but it, an important question like this is what, where I would press my students in classes. Well, how do you know that? How would you measure that? How would you, you know, actually sort of verify that instinct? And so here, something can, but something can be neutral on its face, but then when you actually look at the quote-unquote result, when the result turns out to be overwhelmingly that they are white or overwhelming. I mean, I mean, again, there's the cover is the neutrality. Because in the end, they're looking for a result. And the result isn't one that creates diversity. It's one that reinforces sort of a history of being white, and that's Harvard. And it's also a very sort of shallow notion of neutrality to think that, well, neutrality equates to colorblindness. Like colorblindness is a particular method of sort of navigating race. It is not a neutral method. It's one method. Uh, but we can actually look at some numbers. So I just want to start with just gross numbers. So we know ALDC, Athlete Legacy Dean's List, Child of Faculty or Staff. Well, as a matter of race, who are they? So LDCs, if we just pull athletes out, just looking at LDCs, from this time period, almost 1,400 were white. Arnie, just guess the number. So 1,400 were white. How many were black? LDCs, 1,400. Um, so 10% would be 140. You know, like five percent would be seventy. Would be seventy. Like, what do you think? Well, it. So I'm I'm looking at the numbers, and it turns out that it was eighty-one blacks, one hundred and twenty-two Latinx, and two hundred and seventy Asian. So clearly, that when you look at the diversity of the outcome from LDCs, it was heavily weighted towards what is obviously colorblind because it's predominantly white because that's the result. 
so here I'll just again turn to a quote from the uh, experts who are the authors of this study. They say that we focus on whites because they make up the vast majority of ALDC applicants and admits. You know, that breakdown is generally true for athletes as well. In the same period, large, large, large supermajority were white, 817, 124 um, black recruited athletes, 54 Latinx recruited athletes, and 101 Asian American recruited athletes. Um, they're also predominantly wealthy. 26% of athletes, uh, their parents earn over $500,000 a year. For all other applicants, including legacy, it's 15%. Now, we can also ask, well, who benefits from this in relative terms? And, it, you know, if someone is really good at math and you're just doing this in your head, you already know that 70% of all of this group, not with, and sort of carving off now the children of uh, staff and faculty, but of athletes, legacies, and deans list, 70% almost of applicants and admits are white. Whereas white applicants only make up 40% of the non-ALDC pool. Of that 70%, or that 70% that's admitted, that constitutes 43% of all admitted white applicants at Harvard. That means that only 57% of Harvard's white student body got in without a legacy at all bonus. That number, the sort of corresponding number for other non-white racial groups, that 16% fall into one of those categories, meaning that 84% got in without that totally non-merit bonus. And so this is an institution that is when affirmative action is in play. Like this is when affirmative action is actually operating. And the white racial preference is, I mean, I don't know, folks can make, like draw their own conclusions. To me, it seems uh, quite staggering. Let me just offer a few more. So, so um, with, yeah, with affirmative in. action, you see the skewed result. So can imagine what's going to happen without affirmative action, how skewed the result is. I'm looking at a comment from a, a Harvard professor who opposes affirmative action. His name is Harvey Mansfield, and he's a government professor at Harvard. And he says, overruling affirmative action is long overdue, adding that the policy is insulting and underhanded. And then he quote, you pretend that people have merit, Mansfield said. It fundamentally denies equality while pretending to promote it. And you are describing the situation now with with affirmative action that clearly isn't merit-based uh, and produces incredibly undiverse campus. And yet imagine what it's going to be like without affirmative action. So again, the word merit is a political volleyball. I'm not sure it has meaning because people get to define it the way they want to. So that's exactly right. And it, they, people define it in particular ways and it travels in ways and does a, a lot of different work. And just the final question for us, so how big of a deal is the ALDC bonus? You know, like we know it matters. We've seen some statistics. We said that 43% of white admits are ALDC. That's around 2,100 students from the time period in question. Walking across Harvard's campus, who like are enjoying this, are certainly not facing negative stereotypes about their intellectual incompetence or whether they deserve to be there. They're just presumed to be deserving members of that community. According to this study, 75% of that 43% would not have been admitted absent this bonus. So this is like your triple bonus. It is a 
group of applicants who enjoy inherited race class privilege, they get this bonus and they get in notwithstanding the fact that even with all the resources that they enjoy, we only have a couple of minutes left. And so let me just um, stop by sort of sort of surfacing uh, a question, which is a question we'll tackle again in two weeks. So does that mean that if legacy is such a critical problem with respect to realizing a system that is racially neutral, mm-hmm. if it's essentially the anti- antithesis of that, does that mean you get racial neutrality by simply removing legacy? Is the answer you know, to no longer needing affirmative action that you just get rid of legacy? And the answer to that is no. Part of the reason why it's no feeds back into or can um, draw on this insight about the double bonus or triple bonus that the, this group of applicants enjoy. Now, one is a boost from their status that's unrelated to academic talents or potential, but the other is a boost because all those other considerations that Harvard privileges, all those facially race-neutral considerations are factors that tend to inflate or exaggerate the relative academic profile of students who enjoy the most inherited race or class privilege. Right. And so that even if that's all we rely on, if we're going to treat different students coming from different contexts in a society that remains, you know, defined by racism, you know, and patriarchy and all other sorts of dynamics in other ways, then it means that certain students, predominantly white, wealthy students, will continue to enjoy a race class preference. Now, one modest way to counter it is through the sorts of affirmative action policies that are currently in place, the current sorts of policies that the Supreme Court is going to say no to. I don't know, a year from now. I'm going to let you go, John, because I have to, which just kills me. But I remember my friend at prep school who started taking uh, prep exams for ACTs and SATs when they were in like eighth grade. So they were preparing and preparing and preparing and preparing. So by the time they took the SAT, the time they took the ACT, they had done this test like 25 times. Tell me that that doesn't prepare them in a different way. And why? Because they were affluent, went to a private school that made that investment. Were they that bright? Not really. Were they able to excel at the exam? Absolutely. And on that note, it is Race Class with Professor Jonathan Feingold of Boston University. This is our summer series on affirmative action. All right, everyone, we will schmooze tomorrow. Ciao. All you folks that you own my life You never made me sacrifice Demons air on my trail Standing at the cross the rolls of a hill
mystical fact I say the devil be walking mad He a fool, he a liar, conjuring a thief Try to tell you what you want, try to tell you what you need 